Pilot TV podcast this week, we're making up for last week's slightly anemic two-review episode with a value-packed, crammed-fit-to-bursting reviewer-palooza as Matthew McFadden and Sean Clifford answer Boyd's questions about ITV's quiz. We get into some mind-bending crazy sci-fi with Alex Garland's devs, carb up for HBO's run, and finally get to talk about season three of Killing Eve. All that and I get to bang on about the new season of Bosch. Don't say we never do anything for you. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show that thinks we're finally getting the hang of this whole self-isolation business. Sure, we've not got dressed in a fortnight and have taken to naming random items of household furniture for company and now have regular in-depth discussions with Clive the Coffee Table about whether Tiger King's caricaturing of Joe Exotic's amusing quirks fails to truly grasp his moral repulsiveness and fails to engage with the deeper issue of how the tigers themselves are ultimately being treated. Karen the Lampshade says we're overthinking it. Joining Clive, Karen and myself on this week's show are Pilot's usual band of misfits... Hailing from the wilds of Chesterfield, a large market town in Derbyshire, at the confluence of the rivers Rother and Hipper, its history can be traced back to the founding of a Roman fort in 1 AD, and indeed its Anglo-Saxon name derives from the Old English Caester, meaning Roman fort, and Feld, meaning grazing land. Its biggest landmark is the Church of St Mary and All Saints, which boasts a famously crooked spire. Never let it be said, I take no interest in the north of England. Love wildlings. Hello, it's Terry White. <laughs> you really do have too much time on your hands. <laughs> just researched. Yeah. You know more about my hometown than I do. Um, interesting <laughs> fact, though, about the uh, church you just mentioned, which has the famous crooked spire. Is it actually a crack then? It's, <laughs> it probably has been at certain points, but um, it's probably the most famous thing about my hometown, apart from uh, page three girl, Joe Guest, who also hails from Chesterfield. It's that this crooked spire, um, the mythology goes that it will straighten only when a virgin is married in that church. Slut shaming. I don't hold with that kind of thing, Terry. Slut shaming via a church steeple. That's right. That's shocking. Shocking behaviour. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be said that, that I was like, all right, I'll do this bit. And then I was like, oh, where's Terry from again? And I was like, the amount of times you've told me where you're from and the amount of times I've just forgotten because everywhere north of the Watford Gap just sort of bleeds into one for me. So I went onto LinkedIn to look up where you went to school, Googled your school, and then was able to find out where wow. you are. Wow. So, you know, I mean, it says quite a lot of effort into this. Yeah, it says it in my Twitter bio, but. uh, Oh, does it? (laughs) Oh, I didn't think to look there. All right, never mind. I appreciate the uh, LinkedIn stalking efforts you went to. I appreciate it. Oh, God. Well, joining us as well is a man who may hail from London and is thus without any interesting story whatsoever, but whose name originates from the Highlands. The word Boyd, of course, deriving from the Scottish Gaelic Bwida, meaning yellow, originally used to denote the child's flaxen blonde hair. Of course, whether this was, is, or was ever true of Boyd has been lost to the passage of time, but it's Boyd Hilton. Did you have flax and blonde hair as a child, Boyd? No, obviously not. And so I had a juice for it, name. I? I had a, had a, had, <laughs> yeah. Um, we should say uh, happy Easter and uh, congratulations on the Lord Jesus Christ rising from the dead. <laughs> I, uh, someone pointed out. Someone put out on Twitter that it's ironic that this uh, that we everyone should be celebrating Easter at a time where Jesus was supposed to be inside and refused to, mm. <laughs> having busted out yeah. of his tomb yeah. and Such gone wandering, breaker. breaking the rules of social distancing. Yeah, it's true. Um, it's I come true. from Ilford in Essex anyway, which is slightly. Do different. you? I think yeah. you came from London. Oh, so well, fuck this whole thing. Up. I was born in the East End in Clapton, um, but I was brought up in in Ilford, Essex. Yeah. I'm taking it on a technicality yeah. then. Born in yeah. born in the East End. 
Yeah. Brick Lane, was it? Under a curry house? Mm, near, close by. Not far. Okay, good, mm. good, good. Oh, Ilford. Yeah. Where did your parents get Boyd from? Well, Terry, when a mother and a father <laughs> love each other very much. Steady. Carry on. Um, yeah, no, uh, my mum was a fan of Stephen Boyd, the actor who's in Ben-Hur. With oh, Charlton wow. Heston. Yeah, he's like Charlton Heston's best mate. <laughs> Couldn't and, have gone with Ben. And she could have, yeah, could have gone with, with Ben. So she, so she gave me, and, she, and a friend of hers mentioned it to her, and she thought it was funny and interesting. So, yeah, she gave me that. Oh, yeah. Good. I like unusual names. Yeah. I think it's like like uncommon names are good. Like every every one of their mothers called James. Or you know, it's yeah. very very overly common. Yeah, but Teresa. You don't hear that many Teresas these days. I'm though, not do you? a Teresa. <laughs> sure you are. I'm not. Sure you are. I was christened Terry. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. So it's just Terry. There's no there's no longer version of this. I found more, something else about you today. Are you more shocked um by that or by the fact I was christened? <laughs> <laughs> without bursting yeah. into flames no it's fine it's fine absolutely fine i believe i was christened too i'm sure it was i think the priest retired and became an alcoholic after that but uh it did it did happen way back in the day i hear wasn't, wasn't the done thing for kids not to be to no, be christened limbo, way back then. limbo but yeah. was it like i hereby name you james the bellend dyer <laughs> so you were there then okay good yeah uh something like that something like that um, okay, good. I'm glad we've got our, our sort of introductory etymology out of the way. I would now go on to the section, what we're watching, except the only slight problem is the answer to that question for me is nothing. I've been watching nothing. I've watched nothing. I have seen nothing. The only things I have watched are the 15,000 shows that we're reviewing today because I've been playing a computer game. I've been playing the Final Fantasy VII remake and it has absorbed my every waking hour. So I apologize for that. Oh, okay. God, you It's nerd. really good though. <laughs> Such a geek! I know. I know. I know. Incredible. I've, uh, I've I've been clocking up some hours on that. Oh, James, what have you been oh, watching, dear. Boy Jay? Um, I'll mention a couple of things. One is um, uh, what thing that we I think we both briefly mentioned last week: the Nest, which climaxes tonight, Easter Monday, on BBC One. It's the Nicole Taylor scripted um, five-part drama kind of thriller with Martin Compton, Sophie Rundle, and it's the one about they they Sophie in desperation they turn to a a, a young uh, woman, teenage late teenage woman to um to be pregnant for them. What's the word? Um, <laughs> surrogate. surrogate. Surrogate, thank you. Be pregnant for them. Be pregnant to be their surrogate them. mother. <laughs> and then that's the setup. And then um we've had uh, three of the four, three of the five episodes so far. Four and five. Four went out yesterday, as this goes out Sunday, and the fifth one on Monday. And it's just, it's a thriller. It's an incredibly gripping thriller and a great premise. In episode two, there's a whole new revelation that turns the whole thing on its head a bit, and it becomes slightly about something else. But she's a, such a brilliant writer um, that it's kind of like a like a, an incredibly quality, believable thing, even though it's testing the limits of credulity all the way through, I think. But she handles it so skillfully that you believe it, everything that's that's happening, even when it slightly goes slightly too far, almost verges on melodrama, but it just pulls it back. And it's beautifully directed, uh, looks incredible, set on this this house right on the, the outskirts of Glasgow on the edge of this huge um, water... <laughs> area of water it's it's amazing and it's that's a really good show and i want to mention in my skin which um is from the same production company and has a lot of similarities to alma's not normal that we did last week it's a story about working class family with lots of issues a teenage girl 
um, uh, played by Gabrielle Creevy, who's 16. She's at school and she's got an incredible, very troubled home life. Her dad's an alcoholic. Her mother has a mental health issue. She's bipolar. Um, uh, played by the brilliant Joe Hartley, who's mm-hmm. in Afterlife and lots of other stuff. And um, it's got, it's funny, but it's got that, it's, it's like, it's a comedy, but it's dealing with all of these issues and issues is a terrible word. It's dealing with the hardships and challenges faced by this young girl who's brilliantly funny and she wants to be a poet and it's and she lies to her friends. She won't tell her friends about her, her difficult um, home situation. It's partly about that, like maintaining the lie that she, the deceit to her friends because she doesn't want to admit she's ashamed of all the things that are going on at home. And it's just brilliantly judged, um, brilliantly written by Kaylee Llewellyn. And if you like Elmer's Not Normal, definitely watch In My Skin. It's on, I think it's all on iPlay, all the episodes and it's great. There you go. My mum's been watching Unorthodox, if that helps you at all. Oh, so is mine. Ah. Yeah. yeah. She's enjoying it enormously. My mum loved it, yeah. James, you've got to watch it. I know, I really want to, but, you know, Not Final computer Fantasy games. Is, a, yeah. is a demanding mistress. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm currently running through the slums with Aerith, the flower girl. Oh That's my god! Even. I think isolation is just kind of deepening your worst tendencies. Yeah, hundred percent. I'll be honest; it doesn't massively affect my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um, I also have been watching The Nest, um, which James, you would hate with every fibre of your being. Um, I agree with everything Boyd says. There are moments when you're like, "This is kind of going off the rails a little bit" because it's gone stark raving mad. You're absolutely right. I think it is the writing that really saves it. The characters are really believable. um, And somehow that makes the entire thing really believable, even when it really shouldn't be. And just as a thriller, it's paced beautifully. The performances are great. Um, I really, really love that. And I watched this week the entire uh, uh, run of Years and Years, which I did in two days. (laughs) Because... I don't. I don't know why. It's some kind of masochistic thing. I think I was keen yeah. to see if it was worse or better than our current situation, <laughs> and I still haven't come to a firm conclusion. Um, there were bits I was having to stop myself, like tweeting out, because they were just so prescient. It was uh, slightly terrifying, but it's still so amazing. It still holds up so brilliantly. Um, even that kind of final episode twist, which I know we were kind of split on at the time. Um, so if you can bear it, I'd suggest. Everybody goes and revisits years and years at this um, particularly difficult time in our lives. Yeah, the prescience is incredible, yeah. isn't it? It's, it, yeah, I, I mean... There's the whole thing about it. the flu, right? There's the whole thing about yeah. the, how the yeah. flu it's just runs kind of running through. Along. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Unbelievable. Uh, can I also quickly mention Money Heist or La Casa de Papel on uh, Netflix, which arrived last Friday. It's the fourth series, the fourth chapter, as they call it. This is Netflix's most popular global show, and it is incredibly exciting, um, riveting TV, uh, about all about this elaborate um, heist um, of uh, in Spain that goes completely wrong and how it affects all the, the team that sets out to do the heist and the law enforcers, and it's thrilling and visceral. Visceral is the word. The Casa de Papel, money heist. I just enjoy hearing you say that. So really. do I. Casa de Papel. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, shall we go on to this week's listener question, which comes to us from Daryl Flew, who says, uh, appropriately named Daryl Flew, uh, if you could have any book or series of books adapted for TV with a big budget, what would it be and why? Boyd, I'm going to put you well, in the hot seat. I've mentioned this novel before because it is like in my top five favourite novels of all time. Is it Michael Chabon? 
It is Michael Chabon. Yes. Yeah. So the showrunner of So Predictable, sorry. I've got another one I'll mention in a second, but my main one is Michael Chabon's The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is his incredible um, kind of alternate reality set in a future world, an alternate world where Israel um, doesn't exist. It was destroyed in 1948. And instead, there's a fledgling state for Jewish refugees in Alaska. And this was actually a genuine um, uh, kind of offshoot of Zionism, if you like, back in the day. Like a lot, of, There was a movement to establish a Jewish state in Alaska, or at least give Jews part of Alaska, like the Alaskan coast, where they could settle, rather than Palestine, because... You know, there wasn't. Are there, you sure there, you're not just yeah. describing Northern Exposure? I mean, I'm sure I had an influence on Northern Exposure. Yeah. So um, that's the setting. That's the backdrop, and then it's a detective story on top of that—a very kind of noirish, Raymond Chandler-esque, incredibly gripping detective story. Um, and it's beautifully written, but it's epic. It's like oh, big. You know, it's it's the 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 urban landscape that they've created. This fictional urban landscape in Alaska is elaborately described, elaborately detailed, um, and it would take a big budget kind of thing. And the Coen brothers were supposed to make a movie of it years and years ago. I think like over 10 years ago, they wrote a script and everything and never happened. I think cause it, probably because it was going to be so expensive. And it has been, I know that uh, Michael Chabon and his wife have um, got the rights to make a TV version. Mm. About, a, about 18 months ago, it was announced there was going to be a TV version, but nothing's happened as far as I'm aware. So I hope to God that somehow the epic TV version of the Yiddish Policeman's Union happens. And the other one I've mentioned is White Noise, the Don DeLillo novel, which is unbelievably prescient as well. And it, and is about a um, Hitler studies professor at an American university. And it's kind of, the whole first part of the, the novel is about establishing his world and his family. And it's like a classic kind of American um, setup of uh, this family that's falling apart. And then the whole second half, suddenly there's this kind of, um, there's this airborne toxic event and um, everyone has is suddenly affected by this airborne toxicity. So it's it's scarily like what's going on at the moment in a slightly different way, but it's also a kind of brilliantly ambitious, bold novel. It's the kind of thing, it'd be, it'd be a bit like, you know, one of the big kind of post-apocalyptic or apocalyptic series that we've seen and enjoyed. Hmm. Um, uh, it could be turned into that kind of uh, that kind of TV show. So those are my two. Quite highbrow, quite highbrow. Yeah, I'm going highbrow, yeah. <clears throat> All of my, I mean, well, you can imagine what mine are going to be like. But Terry, let's see with you. What particular Sylvia Plath poem would you like to be turned into an HBO twelve-part series? Well, it's funny you should say that because um, uh, the Bell Jar was my initial answer. Um, the Bell End Jar, true to, true to form, and it, it, it there was talk about it being made into a TV show. I think a Showtime show because it was originally going to be a film directed by Kirsten Dunst, who then kind of walked away last year. I think it's been quite a troubled uh, development process. And then they said there was a Showtime um, limited series in the works. Um, that was probably about a year ago. We haven't heard anything else since. I think there was kind of a very small film version made of The Bell Jar, like in the 70s. But it's mad to me that it's never actually made it onto either properly, either onto the big or small screen, because it is ripe for adaptation um especially for women like me and the second one i wanted to mention was and i'm going to mangle this pronunciation so you're going to have to forgive me if you are um from norway is the kind of six autobiographical book series um by carl over kunnersgaard and i hope i pronounced that vaguely right and it's called my struggle and it's six a six autobiographical book series 
basically charting his entire life, his relationship with his father, death of parents, um, divorce, the birth of his children. It's um, very, very, very full on, very intense. It kind of made him the biggest writer I think Norway's ever had. Um, And it would make an amazing adaptation. But as the books come in in total, it's something like 3,500 pages. Um, I imagine it may be a bit of a beast to adapt. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily for all of you and indeed our listeners, many of the ones that I would normally choose are actually already being made. So The Wheel of Time is kind of already ongoing. Uh, the King Killer Chronicles, Patrick Rothfuss's series, that, that if he ever finishes it, uh, that I believe was uh, is in, in pre-production, I think, rather than actual production. But that still looks like it's ticking along. The Jack Reacher books are already happening as a TV series. So, you know, I guess I'm good. Hang um, on. You can't, you can't yeah, that, do well, stuff that's, that's no, actually I'm, being I'm, made. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to continue. That was a, that was like a, was a dramatic pause. And now I'm fine. But, but, but so you've ruined everything. You've ruined the whole thing. Uh, but there are others, of course, I would choose. So Joe Abercrombie's First Law is something I really enjoy. Now, weirdly, Tim Miller was actually going to adapt uh, First Law. When I was on set of Terminator Dark Fate, we talked about it quite a lot. He was really excited about it. But I think that's all fallen through now. So I don't know that the First Law is going to become it. It was going to be a Netflix show. What else would I like to see done? Robin Hobbs' Realm of the Elderlings series. I would very much like to see turned into a series. Now Terry's got her head in her hands, wow. but trust me, trust me. That's the that's the sort of the larger name for sort of a, a bunch of series that kind of get crushed together into one big world. But they're really really good. Those were the first fancy books I ever really properly got into, and I love those. Uh, PV Bretts, Peter Bretts, The Demon Cycle is excellent as well. Brent Weeks Lightbringer series I'd like to see these are all fancy series obviously but uh, there are so many really good ones like people say oh you know what's going to be the next Game of Thrones there are so many amazing fancy series which given the right treatment and the right budget I think could do really well even slightly almost borderline maybe sort of cheesy ones like uh, like James Bartley's The Raven series which is very action based and there's literally a character in it called The Unknown Warrior <laughs> but uh, it, it's in a slightly tongue in cheek way do you know what I mean <laughs> oh my god that little lonely laugh is, yeah, the, that was brilliant. is the sweetest and most heartbreaking thing I've heard all week. <laughs> I mean, but there are a lot of contenders. Okay, good, good. And then, of course, the last one I would choose would be uh, Jay Kristoff's Nevernight trilogy. If only because, and I genuinely believe this, of all the books I've ever read, it contains the most excruciating sex scenes in the history of literature. Um, so, you know, there's that too. Mm excellent okay <laughs> are we done these are the books yep. we would like to see adapted uh if you would like to ask us a question then feel free to send it to us via dm on twitter at pilot tv mag and we will do our best to hurl a bunch of random thoughts in your direction shall we get on to news and i'm going to assume that both of you will be clawing over each other's mangled corpses to talk about Stephen moffat so why don't one of you just jump on this straight away Silence, as if neither of you know the news that Stephen Moffat is returning for a new Doctor Who story. Not oh, an well, he's actual, written a, yeah. He's Go written on, a short story. Yeah. Short story. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's a short story. <laughs> You're just story. not excited by this. I thought you'd well, be over it's the moon. Out. It's out there it's out, already. Yeah. yeah, it's out. Oh. It's lovely. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. 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 Oh. 
but well, it's there. Not, yeah, it's not, on the Doctor really Who news, website. Then, it? No, it's not. Re- yeah, that's why we're we're not because it's not really news. Yeah, sorry. Okay, James, but that's well, nice then. of you Fine. to encourage. But it's great. It's great that Doctor Who, that Doctor Who um, gang, if you like, are celebrating that show. You know, we talked about the the, the short video that Jodie Whittaker did. Mm. We talk about these watching parties that they have, where you know we watch along classic episodes that Stephen Moffat's been involved with, Russell T Davis. So it's lovely. Yeah, that's that's part of that. I think that you know just giving Doctor Who fans stuff to keep us to keep us happy and take our minds off the grinding misery <laughs> of the lockdown um, yeah so it's part of that and it was very nice yeah but I was going to mention there's loads of Tiger King news oh my god loads so much yes I saw all this I don't understand I mean, most of it but there is a lot well I mean first of all as we're recording this uh, Thursday last night in Donald Trump's daily press briefing about the virus, one journalist asked him whether he was going to pardon Tiger King, um, Joe Exotic, because Joe Exotic is, has got a campaign to be pardoned by Trump. So there's that. There's the fact that Donald Trump was asked. I mean, it's not TV news as such, but it was did happen on TV, and it was one of the greatest moments, bizarre moments of recent uh, history. But they're also doing a sequel. They're doing a kind of spin-off sequel ser- series on. Um, I think it's the Crime and Investigation Channel in America. They're doing their own like look at Joe Exotic which they're making now also the director of the Netflix series said that they've got loads of footage they want to do another either a sequel series as well or at least another episode and um, Fox is airing a one hour TMZ special on the Tiger King as well so it's basically every it's become become a TV industry in its own right Tiger King and everyone is piling in there's a fucking podcast everything it's all happening as well as the TV drama version that we talked about a couple of weeks ago well and now there's talk of another isn't there Ryan Murphy and, and Rob Ryan Lowe Murphy, yeah. yeah Rob yeah. Lowe posted an amazing picture to his Instagram <laughs> of him as as Joe Exotic and they're talking about they're developing it and, and Rob Lowe basically confirmed that on his Instagram no deals been made or anything like that it'd probably be for Netflix because that's who Ryan Murphy has a uh, deal with um but i think rob lowe is um joe exotic i think that'd work oh, for me perfect yeah, like absolutely. massively yeah. but did you see the viewing figures they released um they said 34.3 million unique viewers um yeah. in the first 10 days i think 19 million of those alone were in the u.s yeah. Which is just incredible, staggering. But Boyd, I yeah. shared your incredulity. I can never say that word. Incredulity, incredulity. last yeah. night because also yeah. that journalist who asked the question about would you pardon him, mm. what is from a New York newspaper, New York, which is at the epicenter in America of the coronavirus yeah. outbreak. And you know, you've yeah. got one question for Donald Trump. Yeah. What do you ask him? You ask him if he's going to pardon him. And what I loved is, is obviously Trump can never be seen not to know something. So even though he apparently doesn't yeah. know about it, has no idea who he is, he was like, oh yeah, yeah, I'll look into it. I'll look into it. Yeah. What? <laughs> wow. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible. Did you see that Queeby finally launched with over 300,000 mm. downloads in the US? That's mm. that good? absolutely nuts. I don't know. People like from American listeners were tweeting said they were disappearing down Queeby holes and uh, uh, and and getting their phones out and watching all kinds of shit. So I don't know. Like I don't know how I feel about this. It makes me feel old. Um, what are your thoughts? What do you think? Is this no. is this the end of life as we know <laughs> no. it? Is it Just the no. death of civilization? Just is it a no. bigger threat than the coronavirus? I think I think it's um, probably launched at round about the right time with everybody hunkered <laughs> down, quite frankly. Um, but I, I still, I, and it feels unfair to comment until we've actually watched something on it, kind of experienced it for ourselves. But the basic premise, as we've discussed before, of watching these very short form 
pieces of telly on your phone, no matter how good the talent is, and the talent, as we've talked about before, is remarkable. It's incredible, yeah. Um, but I just can't. I just can't get my head around that. I'm not 14 years old, but do 14 year olds watch stuff on their phone? I don't. I mean, I don't know. I don't hang around with any. Um, Apparently so. Apparently so. Do they? But I just. I. I, I, yeah, I, I'm the appeal of short form. I mean, as you know, I don't really like short form. So I don't like anthologies bother me because they're too short lived. So I don't know that I would enjoy something that was a few minutes long. But uh, but as you said, the, the amount of talent involved, like the, the launch, the lineup of so, so Jeffrey Katzenberg is the one who kind of uh, founded mm. this app. But uh, Mark Wahlberg's got that docu docu series. I love the fact there's a show on there, Chrissy Tagan's Chrissy's Court, and I really hope that is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> Uh, with her as a kind of Judge Judy I figure, say, like, I would, Judge I'd pay real money, real money to see that. Um, Sam Raimi's got that horror anthology on there, Fifty States of Fright. There's, I mean, there is so much on that service, but I just, yeah, I mean, I it, it feels like something that's not going to launch in the UK. Just, you know, it just it feels like that. But who knows? Maybe we will get it, and we'll all be glued to our phones. It has got some quite good reviews from some of the like American critics I've read that saying actually some of it's quite compelling and you know it's well produced and all that. So you know it, 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 I'm interested to see. No news at all. I have I've also seen um, clearly British people have have signed up for it. You know effectively there are ways around. You know you can buy the app in dollars if you really yeah, want. Yeah, to. if you've got a US iTunes account or whatever. Yeah, if you've got you all of that. Like, yeah. yeah. So I've seen some British people talk about it and they seem quite excited about it. Some of them. So you know. I, who, who knows? But yeah, it who doesn't knows? thrill me either. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? I'll tell you what is exciting, though. Did you see that Fleabag's live theatre performance mm. is coming to Amazon? That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it'll be there now. By the time that, yeah, yeah, it'll be there. Yeah, by the time this goes buy. out, it will be there. Yeah, because yeah, it drops uh, drops on the weekend, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's that's very exciting. I have seen that theatre performance, albeit not so much live as it was beamed into the picture house, but it's the next best thing. Uh, and it's really, really good. It's good because, I mean, a lot of it is in the first season of, of, of Fleabag, but I think it's really interesting to see how that show got spun out into that series. And it is an incredible sort of one-woman show. It's so good. So I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely going to watch that when that drops on Amazon. Uh, I can't wait. Oh, isn't there a cut of the um, profits from it going yeah. to... All, a, all the profits. All the profits, the profits yeah. are going all to... All the profits, yeah. yes. Are going to... They're going to um, people in the creative arts, particularly like, I think there's a whole load of it going to the Soho Theatre um, and Associates. They, you can get it on their website as well. So, because um, I think it was, it, the first performances were at the Soho Theatre. Mm. And so... At it's the all like they're, they're, the Soho Theatre. The Soho Theatre. Soho Theatre. The Soho Theatre. Yes. Theatre. Theatre. And... Um, and they're putting out giving grants to people you know who work in in the theater who are who who, who just literally all the, all the workers completely just disappeared overnight for that whole sector so I think it's a really good thing yeah mm, yeah and also it's gonna be brilliant to watch so you know do it really reason. interesting yeah to see how it went from that mm, that it's so good one she woman so performance on yeah into mm. the incredible thing that it turned into yeah it's interesting mmm did you see the thing? You know the you know the good fight. Do you watch the? Have we talked about the good fight? The, the Christine Baranski. Indeed, we've reviewed um, it before. American. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I mean, I think it's such a it's brilliant great. show, and it's always been bold. And um, it take it, it. You know, all its storylines are torn from the headlines. To use that mm. cliche, but um, episode one of season four, which uh, has gone out in America, um, it posits what would happen if Hillary Clinton had won the election. And so it's kind of set in an alternate world where Hillary's won and she's about to be sworn in. Um, I, so I don't think the rest of the season follows that trajectory, but I'm, I'm, I can't wait to see what they do with that. Yeah, because Trump has played a large part in this up until yeah. now. So presumably yeah, it's like exactly. one of Diane Lockhart's fantasy episodes. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. I think it's a one-off special. Oh, but she great. said, yeah, Christine Bransky said it was like a favorite episode she's ever done. It's, it's brilliant. So yeah, I can't wait for that. Oh, good stuff. Any other news out there that we saw? Well, James, after uh, your kind of emotional outpouring about it last week and this week on Twitter, I watched the latest John Krasinski. Um, oh, oh my God. Episode, the Hamilton one. And let me tell you that I had a very weird reaction because I've never seen Hamilton. And yet I. I found that entire bit really like emotional and got a bit teary i was um, in floods of tears i had to stop it because i got a call from nick on empire to talk work went back to it and then started crying again <laughs> <laughs> I just, it was so so emotional like some good news the first episode i thought was lovely and i really enjoyed it but the second one just destroyed me yeah absolutely so destroyed me it was just the nicest thing. And it was just, yeah, I, that is the, it is exactly what he said. It is exactly what we need. Yeah. Things like that. And it was just beautiful. Him sort of like using his, uh, his and his wife's star power to do something mm-hmm. really nice for someone. And I just thought it was, oh, makes me well oh, up. It was lovely. Uh, yeah, it was delightful. I, I love that. John Krasinski is my new favorite human being. So <laughs> can oh. we have more of that, please? More, yeah. more heartwarming, mm. lovely things. Yes. Um, well, he's doing yes, it every that, week, isn't he? He is. Yes. He yeah. is. Yes. Who, who knows what will happen next week? Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, did you say I want to mention that Lisa Kudrow has been confirmed as star having a key role in um, Space Force, mm-hmm. the Netflix comedy series that you can read all about in the next uh, issue of Pilot TV magazine. Yes. Um, isn't that out this week, in fact? Should we mention Well, yeah. yes. There we go. Oh, sorry. That's have a good I, bit of I, news. Uh, spoiled it. No, 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 no. Anyway, but that will be the next okay. item. She joins um, Steve Carell and John Malkovich, incredible cast in this show. And it's been announced it's uh, going to launch on May 29th on Netflix. It's all about the actual real space force that does exist, um, that is the kind of fourth arm of the military in America in space. They want to basically be in charge of the moon. And um, I've seen it and it's and we'll review it when it comes out, blah, blah, blah. But Lisa Kudrow, I love the fact that Lisa Kudrow is doing more and more stuff, mm-hmm. um, fresh from her brilliant feel-good performance um, as Mae Martin's mum in that fantastic Blackpool episode um, that I've now watched three times, I think. Um, oh. uh, uh, she's so good in that. Perfection. And she's very different in this. Yeah, she's so brilliant, Lisa Kudrow. I think she's like one of the greatest comedy actresses ever. So, yeah, she, and she's in Space Wars. Awesome. Well, Boyd alluded to it just now, but the latest issue of Empire Magazine goes on sale this Thursday and with it a brand spanking new issue of Pilot TV magazine, which is there for your enjoyment. Uh, Boyd, what have you got in your section of this Pilot TV magazine? Oh, God, I haven't written the list. But um, off the top of my head, uh, <laughs> Space Force, as I just mentioned. Yes, Space um, Force. Gangs of London. Uh, we interviewed Joe Cole for that, who's the lead in that fantastic... And we'll be reviewing um, it on this podcast we'll next week. We'll be reviewing it next week, yeah. Um, huge, big, lavish uh, gangster thriller from the director of what are those films called? Um, oh, it's from the Raid, Gareth Evans. The Raid, the thank Raid you. Fame. The Raid and the Raid. Do you know that yeah. Gangs of London is based on a video game? Did you know that? No. Yeah, the is TV it? series is it's oh. genuinely based on a, a very little-known PSP video game. But we'll get into that next week. Oh, good. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I had no idea. Um, we <laughs> interview. Wait. Yeah, we interview um, Jack Thorne, who's the lead writer of um, the. French jazz series that's going on in Netflix called The Eddie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got an incredible array of talent. Damien Chazelle directs it. Um, that, so that's, and we've got a whole kind of everything you need to know about that show um, and loads of other stuff. And I interviewed Ricky Gervais, but that's in the features, isn't it, for Afterlife? Indeed. Um, Indeed it is. Afterlife 2, which is coming soon, which we'll also be doing next week, I think. We will. Uh, 
that stuff. Yeah. Loads of loads of good stuff. Can't remember, also can't remember all the other stuff. The greatest TV characters of all time, oh, yeah. and speak to a few of them. Uh, so you can look forward to that excitingness. I think you will be surprised by who drops in at number one. Uh, what else have we got in features, Boyd? I'm racking my brains for this. I'm terrible. Should ha- I'd have a copy in front We've- of me, but obviously I can't get one. <laughs> Yeah, and it's yeah, same for all of us. Yeah, we've done a big feature on the third day, which is this incredibly ambitious Sky HBO thing with Jude Law um, from the writer of Utopia. Yes, and indeed. now this was Dennis supposed Kelly. to take place when we went to press. It was supposed yeah. to take place obviously sooner than in fact it will do because of the virus. It's going to happen later in the summer. But it's yeah. it's this six part drama, three episodes, and then the big live event in the middle. It's completely breaking the boundaries of TV drama and then another six, three episodes afterwards. So we've spoken to um, the showrunners for that, the writers and showrunners. It's a, a really interesting story It's because it's a genuinely new thing in TV, I think. So that's we've got a feature on that. What else is what the, Oh, yeah, the other features on. can't remember. <laughs> uh, I, in the back section of the magazine and our retro-looking section of the box, we talk to the creators of The Inbetweeners to get a little bit of insight into why that became the phenomenon that it did. We have one of the most mind-bending maps I think we've ever conceived, which where we try and uh, conceptualise for the human brain the four-dimensional space that is the inside of the TARDIS. Good luck making sense of that one. Uh, we, talk, we have a look at, back at Limitless, the TV series that spun out of the Bradley Cooper movie. Uh, a little bit of love for Jennifer Garner and J.J. Abrams in Alias as well. And a heartfelt reminiscence from Empire's Chris Hewitt about the grand finale of Blackadder Goes Forth, which will bring a tear to your eye. And I've just remembered, we've got a, a feature on um, Save Me too, where uh, we spoke to Lenny James and Leslie Manville. And it's got a really, I think it's a really interesting story about how he formulated the second season mm. and how, why he decided to take, make certain decisions that he did. So that's, that's one of the main features, yeah. Exciting stuff. So the latest issue of Pilot TV magazine available exclusively with the new issue of Empire magazine, uh, which is on sale now from all news agents, which, of course, you're not allowed to go to. But that's okay because not only can you subscribe, but you can buy the issue online, have it sent directly to your door, or you can get it digitally on whatever, you know, digital doohickey you have, be it tablet, phone, whatever. Uh, If you want more details on that, if you go to empireonline.com, the various ways that you can get Empire Magazine is in a story pinned on the homepage. Right, time now, I think, for some guests. Uh, Before the world ended and we all started living in a Mad Max-style post-apocalyptic dystopia, Boyd sat down with Matthew McFadden and Sean Clifford to talk about their new show, ITV's Quiz, which dramatises the true story of Charles and Diana Ingram and the great who-wants-to-be-a-millionaire coughing controversy. Uh, Rejecting my suggestion to give them multiple-choice questions, Boyd spoke to the pair of them about the show, and this is what happened quick drop in here it should be noted that due to an unforeseen technical problem otherwise known as Boyd failing to turn on his microphone the questions were not recorded when this interview was conducted but thanks to modern technology we have seamlessly looped in Boyd's question so that no one could possibly tell the difference so what I'm saying is if it sounds a bit dodgy blame Boyd Hello, Matthew McFadden and Sean Clifford. Welcome to the Pilot TV podcast. 
Thank Hello. you for having us. Braving the global pandemic as you are. Well, we're very brave. Sinks and soap at the ready. Yeah. Now, this show quiz, which tells the extraordinary two story of your characters based on real people, Major Charles Ingram and Diana Ingram, and their involvement in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It's an unbelievable true story, but it also brings together an incredible array of talent. You've got the writer, James Graham, the director, Stephen Frears. Was it the talent involved or the actual story that appealed to you most? All of the above. <laughs> Both, yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, yeah. It's like a dream project. Untundownable. Yeah. Yeah. When you were cast, did you know, Sean, that your husband was going to be played by Succession's Matthew McFadden? And Matthew, did you know that your wife was going to be played by Fleabag Sean Clifford? Yes. I was didn't. That? Yes. You didn't. I think I snuck in the door first, <clears throat> but I did cry. <laughs> Real tears in hairdressers, funnily enough. Um, was it in When I found out you... Okay. No. You had been cast because I had been saying your name repeatedly for about a month before because of succession. And so when I heard that news, I was in bits and bobs. Yeah, it was wonderful. Does it feel like this project is another chapter in history of peak TV in that the two of you are from such iconic shows? Sean has created a, a hybrid of both our shows called Suckbag. Well, no, Kieran Culkin oh, Kieran. created that. Oh, Kieran did. Okay. But uh, we did form an alliance Wow. In Los Angeles in January, and uh, I wasn't there. Sadly, it's um, it was um, formalised by uh, Andrew Scott during a, an awards ceremony. <laughs> suck bag, suck bag. Um, yeah, yeah, it is a beautiful thing. And we were saying we've got to do a crossover. We've got to do a crossover. And and I reminded everyone that Matthew and I had already done it. And and here it is yeah. at his quiz. The public perception of Charles and Diane Ingram is that they did con their way to the million, I think. But in this three-part drama, their guilt or innocence hangs over the whole thing. Did you change your mind about their innocence or guilt as you were filming the show? Constantly. Daily, sometimes daily, 10 yeah. times a day. <laughs> yeah, sometimes a complete swing over lunch. We'd, we'd sort of find each other on set after lunch and go... They did it. They did it. Those, dre you know, and then or we're completely convinced of their innocence and that you know. Yeah. And actually, I remember you there sort was of, one morning and I came in. I marched in. And I was so into the makeup angry. Bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, protesting yeah. their innocence. And, but yeah. ultimately, you can't play that because no. as actors, you're playing little moments, very simple, straightforward moments in time. You know, and it's and you're serving the story and you're serving the writer, and so that's sort of. That's sort of fun, but it's not the it's not the main thing, really. No, you have to play the truth of it, and yeah. um, and as an actor, it's it's never a good idea to comment on your character. You've just got to yeah get to their heart. Yeah, and also it's not your you know the final thing is out of your hands anyway. And I know you know Stephen would say, well, let's let's do a version of the scene where you two are a little, is a little bit more ambiguous, or or well, let's do a sort of innocent one mm -hmm. and a guilty one, you know, and and so he has lots of options in the in the cutting room and. But it's funny because there are there are things like that where we filmed what would be, I don't know, a guilty version, and they've included it. But actually, in the context of the story, it doesn't look at it at That's all. Right. Everything actually looks ambiguous, and it just sort of goes to set like show how much your perception as a viewer and how much you project onto a story will change everything. So actually, yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's projection yeah. and bias and pushing something into a narrative that suits you and it's all those themes of fascinating memory the way yeah. we remember events um all that stuff is really yeah we get into the science of that a bit in the show yeah. and that's really fascinating just yes. as a general rule as a human i think yeah. 
Once you get to the third episode, when your lawyer, played by Helen McCrory, arrives to put your case for the defence, we'll have gone on a fascinating journey, I think. Was that key to the whole drama of the piece? Exactly. Mm. And maybe the salutary lesson is that things are not, you know, before we all pile on and condemn in life, you know, things are not black and white. Never. Things are nuanced. Things are grey. Always, 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 always. And... um, it feels like this has a similar tone to Stephen Frears last TV drama, a very English scandal, jaunty but quite moving. Did that appeal to you? It sort of barrels along yeah. with a slight tongue in cheek sometimes, but then then sort of it really hits a you quite punch. hard. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I loved English Scandal. I thought it was a yeah. masterpiece, but yeah. um yeah, I I I agree. I think it's got that there is something really joyful about our show. It has a real light yeah, it's touch. It's sort of flying by the seat of its pants yeah. sometimes. It's like, here we go, we're going. Yeah. Yeah. It gets quite dark when the full reality of how they were treated by the media becomes clear, particularly in episode three. Is it quite shocking what happens to them? Yeah, I think it's really shocking. Yeah. I think it will be surprising to people. It's a side of the story that's never been told. And um, yeah, I think it will. I think it will surprise people. And it's, uh, there was a human cost you know, in this, in amongst this narrative that was, um, you know, very entertaining by all accounts um, in terms of how it was represented by the British press at the time. But, you know, there were, there were other things going on behind the scenes that I think we could, uh, we could do well to sort of examine how we consume media, how we uh, report it, all of those things. When you met the real life couple, the real life Ingrams, what was that like? Because you'd filmed most of the series already, I think, hadn't you? All of it. Well, all of our bits, right. hadn't we? Yeah, and then it was they the came, last day. They came to set on the last day on the Langham Hotel set. They were lovely. They were really sweet. We yeah. didn't. We didn't. It was have so much time. brief, wasn't it? Yeah. It was right before a take. Um, they were. They were very very lovely and they've been so generous with the information they've provided to James and he he spent a lot of time with them and I think that was really present in the script actually and that's why we were able to sort of access yeah. them in, in yeah. that way but it felt right to sort of wait until the end and right. yeah yeah and we're not doing impersonation I mean no. you know it's a funny it's an odd line to to sort of walk we're not doing strict impersonations of them and you know uh, it's a dramatic retelling of this story, but it's James's version of the story. Yeah. You know? And just to show how maverick the telling of the story is, there's even a song and dance sequence. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Lord. What was that like to film? <laughs> joy. Was it? Joy. Utter. Uncomplicated joy. joy. Yeah. It feels like you filmed all the big serious scenes and then you got to do this song and dance. Yeah. yeah. Heaven. Heaven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We before I met Matthew, I was I was told <laughs> that he was cheeky, which I think is the best virtue for anyone anyone to have. And uh, yeah, I think I met my match okay. on that set, and, and we really got to, <laughs> to fulfil it. And that day it was very fun. It was really fun. And finally, um, Matthew, what's happening with Succession? It's looming. Yeah, it's sort of a end of April depending on, you know, the current situation with the right. pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Which is <laughs> so... Keep you on your toes. Yeah, but everyone's in the same boat, so we'll see. But uh, yeah, hopefully we'll start in a month or so. Oh. Yeah. And Sean, you've got a big new show coming up on Sky, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a trailer out and about, so people can go and dig around for that. Um, uh, which you know, it's a it's a far cry from from this and from Fleabag. So it was really fun fun to play. And Maisie was a dream. We had a lot of fun, a lot of cheekiness going on on that set. Um, that's not out for a while, and I've got 
uh, Hitmen also on Sky coming yes, up, and Liar yeah, is on at the moment, and yeah, um, yeah few few bits and pieces flying around. And congratulations on a glorious series. Thank you very much. Oh, that's very thank kind. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. That was Matthew McFadden and Sean Clifford, and we move now onto this week's reviews. Where first of all, let's get straight into quiz. So as you've just heard, this is ITV's show that charts the rise of their own smash hit game show and what happened when one family decided to game the system. Boyd, would you like to take this one or would you like to phone a friend? Ha! Very good. Well done, James. Have you ever, James, wow. have, you ever watched, have you ever watched an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Never in my life. Of course How? you haven't. What? Why would I watch that? Like, because I don't understand it. Like, where's the, the entertainment? Yes, but where's... The there's no entertainment there for me at all. Just watching people answer questions. I just, I'm, no. Just, well, no. It is one of the all-time great quiz show formats. Um, and the interesting thing about this series, so as as um, they just explained, it is the true, incredible true story of the Ingrams, Major Charles and his wife, Diana, who um, he went on Millionaire, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, at its height. So this is in in the early 2000s. It was the biggest show on TV, what, probably the biggest format in the world. So they sold it globally. It was a hit in America, everywhere, uh, a massive phenomenon. And um, this tells the story not only of the Ingram specifically, but I think the interesting thing about the structure of this three-part series is the first part is as much about the invention and creation of Millionaire mm. and the context of ITV needed a big entertainment hit. So we meet the ITV executives who commissioned it. We see how they developed it and turned it into the thing it became. At the same time, we meet the Ingrams. She particularly is the one who's obsessed with quiz shows, not him. Um, so um, Diana is the one, played by Sean Clifford brilliantly, who's kind of driving. She she actually appears on Millionaire First. She has a kind of gr weird group, a kind of underground network of quick TV quiz show obsessives who then become a network of millionaire who wants to be millionaire obsessives. And they research how to get, get on the show, how to deal with certain questions. That's really fascinating. That all actually happened, all, exi all exists. So the middle episode is the build-up to his appearance on the show, which, of course, was when the coughing happened and when uh, uh, it's never been shown on ITV, never been shown on TV, but it does exist. You can watch it on YouTube. James Graham, who did the, um, the famous um, Brexit drama with Ben Cumberbatch, I think he's interested in the idea of truth and media coverage and and the media kind of um, depiction of events that always side with someone, you know, how they're constantly taking sides and constantly depicting people um, to, to their readers as innocent or guilty. And there's no gray area. There's no nuance. And I think James Graham's writing generally is all about trying to find the nuance, trying to find is there is there a is there an objective truth to these situations? Can we ever know if people are innocent or guilty? And that's what's so interesting about this series. I think it's fantastic. I think it's Stephen Frears directing it, him writing it, this incredible cast, this Rolls Royce cast. I loved every minute of it, and it's funny, and it's got that kind of it's got that jaunty tone that um, that Stephen Frears brought to a very English scandal, and it's got there. It's got funny moments. It's got a song and dance routine moment, as I mentioned in the interview. I just love its ambition. This is an ITV drama with all of these incredible people involved, telling this incredible story in the most fascinating and entertaining way. Terry, did you have a similarly fun time? So I watched the first episode, um, which I presume you did as well, James, and. Yes. I mean, I I agree with Boyd to the extent that I thought the most interesting thing about the first episode was, was actually the kind of um, 
the telling of how the format came about, I didn't realise that was going to be such a major strand of that first mm-hmm. episode. And that actually I found way more compelling than the Ingrams, which you're kind of only really starting to get introduced to them, to this network that Boyd's talking about. You're kind of getting to know them as characters, but you don't really put any flesh on the bones. So I was kind of surprised that that story got sidelined so much, especially as it is a three-parter. Um And I found that the whole way that it came about, the way that it became a global success, you saw it it kind of, you know, rising in the ratings, 19 million at one point, a massive percentage of the population all all tuning in. I found all that stuff really, really fascinating. The tone stuff did throw me. And jaunty, Boyd, is probably a really good way to put it. There was, I found moments of it unforgivably cheesy and that's the only way i can think to describe there's a whole bit on how they came up with the name that i just oh god i found unbearable i found it unbearable yeah same here i found it completely unbearable and there there is a lot of kind of i found there's a lot of kind of heavy-handed exposition so there's a bit where um they're first running the show and it's kind of only been a couple of episodes and you know there's no tension um on screen and instead of it's clear that there's no tension in this woman who's kind of you know just takes the money and there's no real kind of back and forward and there's no sense of jeopardy but they have a character actually go oh no why isn't there any tension? Like, and, and I found those, I, I kind of tripped over those moments. I agree with you on the cast, stellar cast, everybody. I mean, Michael Sheen is absolutely fantastic. It's quite disconcerting because he looks nothing like him, mm. which isn't his fault because his face is his face and he doesn't <laughs> have Chris Tarrant's face. If you close your eyes, yeah. it is absolutely spot on mm, i mean he's incredible uh, his ability to do that i mean his tony blair i think is is untouchable but the way he captures his inflections his mannerisms it's a- absolutely fucking incredible um i'm interested to see episode two and actually what you've described boyd about episode two and three and this kind of grapple about truth and and representation of truth and um all of that I f- feel much more excited by. I f- mm. I found that there wasn't enough of the Ingram story in in the first episode to really to really grab me. To be honest, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Absolutely, I, I, and I watched um, one and two in one go. Yeah, so I almost can't remember now the extent to which they're not foc- the focus of episode one. Yeah, but they then become completely the, f- the focus of episode two, and I think and and, and then. And I think it gets better and better, actually, and it gets more and more fascinating. In episode three, the court case is so intriguing. It's quite a bold structure in mm. a way because, yeah, it's because it's th- three distinct acts telling three distinct, slightly different stories with the, with the emphasis on certain characters rather than telling the one story across three episodes and equally mm. spending an equal amount of time with the different elements of it. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting. But – and I think – I because I went on set as well yeah. and spoke to James Graham and he was like, this is definitely all about these three different um, episodes. And he was very clear about that. And it's almost like, you know, he wants to tell the viewers to not expect too much in the first episode of exactly what you're saying about the Ingrams because it is telling the story of Millionaire. And in his play that it's based on, the stage play that it's based on, which I, which I did see, it's even more about the phenomenon of mm. quiz shows and TV quiz shows. There's all stuff about other quiz shows are brought in. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. He's he's fascinated by that as much as this particular story, definitely. But it's interesting that it's called Quiz, right? Because I was kind of, why yeah. is it called why is it called quiz? Mm. But then when you, and it opens on a montage of other game yeah. shows and 
that context that it sets it up in yeah that was the biggest surprise for me and suddenly it all makes sense of why it's called quiz and why there's that focus um yeah. but yeah i'm going to give on on your effusive recommendation boyd i'm going to give a i'm going to give two a go give it a go yeah i think you'll love it yeah i lo- i'm with terry actually the the tone caught me by surprise because on the one hand like it begins with you know the 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 genesis of the show and it's really interesting i love the kind of retro tv credits at the beginning mm. showing kind of tv shows through the ages um but then like as you say some of the really cheesy moments caught me by surprise like when they're coming up with the name is one thing like like the really contrived moments which is obviously done for dramatic effect but again it's like, it's like i mean the itv-ness of this was kind of prevalent throughout but uh but and Sheen is, Sheen is amazing, but there were moments where it had an almost, like the humour. Did you call him Sheen? Yeah, I was going to say, did you hmm? call him Sheenie? Sheenie? I don't think Sheen is. Sheen is amazing. Oh, no, oh Sheen is amazing. Sheenie? Oh, Sheenie. Love Sheenie. Mickey Sheenie. No, Sheen is amazing. But but like there's there's moments like when they when they when you know you're first introduced to this this group this syndicate who are kind of trying to game the system and there's this sort of moment where it's almost like Shaun of the Dead type humor. It's like we call ourselves the syndicate, yeah. and it's just like mm. this is a this is a gag. Like this is this is a joke and it's like and it feels weirdly out of place with some of the rest of the episode. And there 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 were just there were key moments in this where. You're like this. This feels like it's. It, we've got like I've changed the channel. Like this is now a different show. Like this is now a slightly sort of campy comedy. Um, but I I did find it quite interesting. Things that kind of threw me slightly was like they've got this sort of like system for gaming it. I'm like, so this is when is this? This is early early noughties, isn't it? Like yeah. Google was a thing in the early noughties. I don't understand why phone a friend isn't phone a friend in front of a computer. Like why is this so difficult for people? Oh, but you know now. Um, I think now they send a um, a researcher or someone from the show to the house of whoever's friend you're phoning to check they're not to make anything. sure they don't Google it. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Oh, is this, is the show still been, running? Cool, still running. They rebooted it, and it's now presented oh, by um, Top Gear dude. Yeah, Jeremy Clarkson. Who is it? I didn't. He, know that. Ha, you love this. I've been a phone a friend. <laughs> Have you back in the day? Yeah. What's the question? One of the early. One of the first um, celebrity ones. I was I was Matt Lucas's phone a friend. Believe it or not, were you? Oh um, my god! Yeah, this just is saying. amazing. Yeah, they didn't actually phone me, but I was there ready to receive the call. Oh, um, but you didn't. You didn't there use was it. no one. And by the way, there was no one um, checking me back in the day. Um, unbelievably, there wasn't. Yeah, you could. You, I mean, I guess I guess they just thought they trusted you to not cheat and use Google. But really? I was like, <laughs> I was like, what do I do? And, Maybe if, can they see me through the ether somehow? You know, <laughs> they're watching he, me. Did he not use his lifeline then? Oh, Bat Lucas. Um, I think he used someone else because it was another. <laughs> so we had uh, options. Well, you know, well, it depends what the question is. Like, oh, I was I the one who was helping with TV and film oh, stuff, I and he had other people see. helping him with. You oh, know, so sports. you don't just so nominate pick, a person. You have a no. You pick like two or three I, I think see. three maybe phone of friends possible ones yeah and you put anyway, the one you think well like, oh okay this is this is interesting stuff okay good so yeah, yeah so apart from my and I've written in my notes here for god's sake just google it but uh or ask Siri I think that was probably a bit too early for that but yeah like I I found it gently amusing I thought it was I thought it was well acted I thought everyone in it was was good but the tone, the tone I didn't object to the tone I think I was just slightly wrong-footed by the tone like I couldn't quite it took me a while to get used to it and once I got used to it I thought I'm genuinely interested to see how this plans out. Obviously, my gaping cultural ignorance helps here because I have no 
earthly idea how this plays out or what happens because i didn't follow it at the time because i've no knowledge of this show really um so i'm i am i am very uh interested it's so worth it because it's it, what happens in the trial is um mm. is, f- is fucking incredible i will like, i know I, I i enjoyed it sean clifford is always great really enjoyed her uh i yeah i thought it was i thought i thought there's an extended gilbert and sullivan sequence which really really mm. kind of threw me because it goes on just that little bit too long deliberately just that little bit too long so it's super awkward uh and again like the tone yeah. of that was like, i don't understand what's happening it's james graham's thing i mm. think you remember the play the original stage play is even funnier in a way and in that the audience gets to vote in that it's quite gimmicky like embraced, oh, well, that, it embraced uh, <laughs> yeah so there was a whole thing where the audience got to vote on whether they thought they were innocent or guilty you know it really embraced the kind of he's obsessed with light entertainment quiz shows as a thing anyway mm. so I think like it being having a kind of light entertainment element it tonally is definitely his vision of how it should be rather than just an ITV thing yeah. okay good well I, I yeah I, I will watch the rest of it I enjoyed it daft as it undoubtedly is uh, lots of fun that is quiz which drops on ITV else begins I should say on ITV on Monday April 13th at 9 p.m. Boyd, is it weekly? Is this nightly? How's this? No, it's running across three three consecutive three nights. consecutive nights. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. Quiz ITV. Next up this week, the return of Killing Eve, uh, which in a pleasant change we in the UK don't have to wait half a year to see after it launches in the US, though you did have to wait a week to hear the review. Uh, Picking up from the end of season two, we find the characters in all new places and under the auspices of a brand new showrunner. But... Has it still got the old magic? Terry, is Eve killing it? Not quite. Do tell. Can that, can that just be That's it? it. <laughs> and that was Killing Eve, which drops on BBC. <laughs> um, so, look, I, th- I always think that with something like Killing Eve, which was such a huge phenomenon, genre-busting, you know, cemented Phoebe Waller-Bridge's reputation, um, really broke Jodie Comer globally. Like, did t- the first season, I don't think we can kind of overstate what a significant piece of television that was. And, you know, Emerald Fennel picked up season two as the showrunner. This famously, they pass it on to a new um, woman every season. And I think I think we all agreed that, you know, there were a couple of standout episodes. It was a bit more patchy than season one, but overall it was um, still in the same spirit and, and still had the same tone and all the stuff we loved about the first season. Season three, as you said, is now um, the showrunner is Suzanne Heathcote, who was the um, Walking Dead writer. And I, I should preface this by just saying I just think it's probably one of the hardest jobs in television is being the new showrunner for Killing <laughs> Eve because the standard is so exceptionally high and people have it on such a pedestal, especially the writing, I think, that I think it's a really difficult gig to come in and do. But what I would say is that this season for me is... Yeah, really kind of a substandard version of what we've had before and it pains me to say this because I adored season one and season two and I've been so excited for this coming back and we should say where it picks up which is you know the last we saw obviously Villanelle had shot Eve um in Rome um 
Eve had felt betrayed by MI6 and Carolyn and there was kind of, they'd finally brought the two of them together and then obviously it ended in this kind of shocking moment where she did actually try and kill Eve finally. Um, So it's not really a spoiler because it's in the trailer and obviously she's fucking in it. So she did not die. Eve (laughs) is alive. Um, But she's struggling with her injuries. She's making dumplings in a restaurant. Um, She's drinking a lot of red wine. She is like miserable as sin, which I always think she kind of loved to be miserable as sin anyway, but that's mm. a whole different thing. Villanelle's faring much better is all I'll say. And it's an interesting setup because actually, for me, it returns more to the spirit of season one because obviously in season one, it was this cat and mouse game. They were apart and it was all about them kind of, the the moments they came together very rarely, the kind of chase of each other. Um, season two, I think some of the more difficult moments or the ones that didn't play out so well is actually when they finally brought them together for whole episodes it took a lot of that tension out that i think we all quite enjoyed season three kind of reverts to that because it's pushed them apart again and they're kind of you know foes in a way that they were in the first season just with loads more baggage so actually i think the premise has a lot going for it but there's something in the execution and i've watched the first two episodes there is something in the execution that just isn't landing for me and it's pretty much across the piece. The writing, and I, ha- and I hate to say because it, it feels like such an easy criticism um, when you've had such exceptional writing in the past, but it lacks the kind of real wit and um, just those unusual bits of dialogue that you genuinely knew you would not hear in any other mm. telly show and had never been written in a telly show. People hadn't written dialogue like that. It's so lacking. I can't remember a single line. I remember reviewing it last season and my notebook for this podcast was full of lines I was jotting down that were just genius. And I couldn't tell you one single line I kind of heard in the first two episodes. Even Villanelle's costumes are kind of less, even her normal clothes, it's all muted for me and it's all a bit diluted. Um, and that's, I found quite disappointing. It may change as the season goes on because there's a lot of setup in the first episode and a kind of catching up with all the characters. And it only really gets going in the last, I'd say, five minutes, maybe three minutes, mm-hmm. um, where it really does kick into gear. But then it kind of, it, it rests again on the second episode. So I'll have to see the whole thing to be able to really, I think, properly evaluate whether the whole thing is a bit of a disappointment. But but the, I found the first two just didn't capture me in the same way that the first two seasons of this amazing, amazing show had done. Yeah, I, uh, I, I broadly agree. I think, I mean, I guess I'm, I, I think you have, the context is, isn't it, that that first series, I mean, the first episode, the first couple of episodes that Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote herself um, was so dazzlingly, brilliantly written. Like, and she is probably the greatest new writing talent of the last what decade yeah. maybe so i think there's so much to live up to it's almost like and that line you know the line in in, in the first or second episode about the rat drinking coke with both hands which is like quite extraordinary one of the all-time great <laughs> yeah right so that line alone was such a brilliant yeah. line of dialogue that summed up how unexpected and unusual and quirky and weird the the dialogue was going to be and the, i remember the scene you know i'm going to bang you could bang on about the, those opening episodes being as brilliant in their way as fleabags you know opening yeah. episode and then that brilliant second season opener these are some of the best single episodes so there's so much to live up to and i actually think even though it's brilliant that they're giving these these women 
a different female showrunner each series. That's a brilliant idea in theory, but I wonder if actually in the end it's turning out to be a bit of a, a poison chalice because everyone's thinking, you can't watch it without going, oh, yeah, so is this one going to live up to the mm. last one, Emerald Fennell? But you know what I mean? It, feel, it feels like a competition between showrunners somehow, which is distracting me as a viewer from what is on screen. So I'm trying to not like judge it in that way. And yeah, actually, as, as I, I agree with you, it so far, and I've watched the, the, the first two episodes, I think you had, it's just be a bit routine. It's mm. a bit like a normal TV show. And what made it so brilliant was how abnormal it was and how unusual and weird it was. So that's my issue with it. There's brilliant. There's moments in that first episode. The the wedding is is really funny, and um, there's a the ending, as you say, is brilliant. And then in episode two, there are scenes, there are kills that are still kind the of kills shocking. Are still great. Skills are still great and it's still stylishly directed and looks great and all of that. But in this storytelling, as well as the actual dialogue, I think it's become a bit routine. So it's got that thing where, you know, characters, a character and authority has to persuade their their underling to do something. And that's, the underling's going, no, I'm not going to do it. That thing, it's got like certain cliched storytelling ideas that you just didn't get. It back in the in that first series, I don't. Or if you did, that was so brilliantly disguised that you kind of went along with it. Characters are trying to persuade other characters to do stuff in this in the in these new episodes that I felt was like they just go yeah, in, yeah. In, you know, it, it, two seasons ago they're just gone yeah, I'll do that because that was part of the joy of it was they don't like there's a Steve Pemberton's character and I love Steve Pemberton is a fairly at the moment cliched you know, authority figure. And there's nothing... And on one hand, it's brilliant to see him and the two of them clashing with each other, but the actual dialogue and the actual... Um, what's happening between them isn't isn't exceptional. So, yeah, I broadly agree. And yet still, I'm going to absolutely carry on watching it. And I yeah. still really like it. And it's still incredibly entertaining. You know, better than most things on TV, but it's just so much to live up to. Well, yeah, and, and if, not living up to if this was a regular TV show, right? If this wasn't Killing yeah. Eve, if this was yeah. something else we would be saying how good it is. But right. but I, I don't think you can divorce it from the first two seasons. No, you can't. No, because you can't, that's, no. that's how we watch things. We watch things. We love yeah. that character. Every single season has informed our love and appreciation for those characters. And that's where the expectation comes from. And I think that expectation, you can't divorce yourself from that. And I think, this, as you say, the standard is so high and it is a bit of a poison chalice in some respects. Um, and I think they should be able to tell a different story in a new way. I think season two was different enough to season one for it to feel like it was Emerald Fennell's own thing while still being in yeah. the vein of what Phoebe Waller-Bridge um, brought to us in the first season. I just, I think that bar of expectation, there's no getting around it, which have, intellectually you just can't do it. I don't think you can divorce yourself from it. And that's the context within which we watch this stuff. And as you say, I'm definitely going to keep going. And it is still good. It, is, it isn't It is a bad show. It's just... Mm from where it's been before and as you say routine it being a routine show is the perfect description it feels like it could be another show on television done by somebody else whereas yeah. the, the the i mean mad surprises stuff you just never thought you'd see on telly stuff you'd never thought you'd ever hear coming out of a character's mouth on a fucking bbc show this is like the the it was so transgressive and shocking and surprising in all the right ways and it's kind of lost that sparkle of that for me I don't know that I've had anything to add to that. Yes, I think you're absolutely oh, no. right. It's it's it was good. It was fine. I know I use that a lot to describe middle of the road things. It's fine, um, but 
it, it lacked sophistication relative to the other two, not relative to a lot of the other stuff that's on TV, but uh, relative to the first two seasons, which are exceptional, the first season in particular. I think it, it's, it's, it is a victim of its own success. The bar at this point is set so high that to clear it is almost impossible, and they don't, uh, certainly not in the episodes that we've seen. Um, is it is it is it entertaining? Yes, are the characters fine? Yeah, it's good. You know, it's it it, it it certainly kept my attention. Uh, it reminded me something that I guess I'd kind of forgotten. I'd forgotten that Killing Eve, for all its kind of playfulness and its wit and how funny it is and how fun it is, uh, is incredibly violent at times. Like it's like mm. shockingly violent. And there are moments in this where I was like, oh Christ! You know, uh, there's a bit of the beginning of the first episode to this which really did take me by surprise and I thought oh I do like that about this show I like that it, it really does blindside you with the violence sometimes but then kind of settles into this sort of slightly friendlier uh, sort of route that it takes um, but yeah I mean it, it's good it's fine it didn't set my world on fire uh, I will I watch the, the rest of the season yeah but I don't think I'm going to be in a rush to necessarily do it like it won't be like I must binge these all tonight um, I think I can I can take my time and wait until Bosch is done. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so that's Killing Eve, and it drops on. It's available. iPlayer. So it's com- quite complicated. It's available yes. on iPlayer now. So it's dropping every Monday morning yes. from six a.m. a weekly, and then it'll be on next, next Sunday next, on BBC oh, so One. Next Sunday, BBC 15. One, nine p.m. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that is Killing Eve season three. On now to BBC Two's Devs, a miniseries written by Alex Garland of Ex Machina 28 Days Later and the novel The Beach fame. Uh, This debuted in the US on Hulu last month and centres around Lily Chan, played by Snoya Mizuno, uh, a computer engineer working at a company called Amaya, a company she believes is responsible for the disappearance of her coder boyfriend. Boyd, was this one written in C plus or D minus? That's a really funny computer coding gag, (laughs) which is lost on both of you. But I think people listening to this podcast will appreciate. Your people will, yeah. yeah. Right. So I, I don't know anything about that stuff, about computers, about um, quantum coding and quantum computing, which is what this is the world is set in. High tech, you know, um, Californian. uh, It's setting up the high tech company run by this. Clearly, slightly crazed um, multi-billionaire played by Nick Offerman, who's um, who's built this campus where his vast team work on mysterious projects involving, seemingly involving, being able to predict what's going to happen in the future and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the campus is dominated by this 120-foot-high creepy creepy as hell statue full color if you like statue of his daughter yeah. that dominates this kind of forest where they all go and work on this campus and that 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 alone establishes this an extraordinary visual quality this this show has it has a creepy atmosphere I think of um, of dread, and yet has a kind of beauty to it. So it's there are influences of of um, Kubrick, two thousand and one. Mm, there are kind of so. gold obelisks. There's weird this weird world where the, uh, the the guy who is sent to work in this mysterious devs lab, which is offset from the rest of the campus, and then strange things happen after that. It starts so you think it's his story to start with because he is this young genius coder who's picked specially by Nick Offerman's character to go work in the special lab. Uh, but then it turns out to be his girlfriend's story. And um, I won't spoil that to say how that develops. Bottom line, right, I'll to cut a long story short, because I think we're going uh, to have interesting opinions. I fucking love this show. <laughs> I think it is 
beautifully paced. I think it's got an incredibly interesting premise, which is, A, there's a mystery of what is going on in this special secret, top secret lab. What are they investigating? What is the tech they're developing? Why does this young guy so freaked out by it? Um, then there's the mystery of researching, what, of finding out what happens to him that his girlfriend takes up. She becomes the protagonist of the show from then on. There's the whole mystery of what happened to the, the girl with the 120-foot-high uh, statue that dominates the landscape. There's a, a kind of philosophical, high, huge, big ideas being explored about cause and effect and all of that that I found fascinating um, because I don't really, you know, you kind of, you, you hear some stuff, some, uh, uh, some stuff about this kind of philosophical limits of how does cause lead to effect and all of that. I found it relentlessly fascinating gripping. It is deliberately paced. Um, it's got a very specific kind of almost chilly atmosphere, like a like you know, like a two thousand and one Space Odyssey, or, like, or basically Alex Garland's Garland's films. Mm. He has a, definitely has a certain way of telling his stories and a visual style, um, a, lot, a kind of shimmering quality. Yeah, a lot of DNA showed with Alex Machina in this. Right, a lot of DNA with X Machina, and I think it's incredible. And I've watched six episodes. Um, I love it. I, it's my, one of my favourite things for a long, long time. I think like it's um, it, there's incredibly bold devices users. He'll start an episode with an incident that's play, that happens like 45 minutes later in that episode. That happens in episode two or three. There's another episode where it just starts with huge big close-ups of the characters um, and you kind of find out more about them um, slowly as time goes on. There's an episode that suddenly flashes back to explain a lot of the backstories. So I think it's one of the boldest, most interesting, most challenging, most atmospheric, visually stunning series I've seen in a long time. Absolutely fucking love it. Uh, Terry is left in disgust and stormed yeah. out. Um, yeah. uh, because Terry has wandered away, I can assume I can hear baby Emlyn screaming in the background, so I assume she has gone to pacify him. Uh, I'll jump in here, I think, to say, I agree with you, Boyd. I thought it was great. Uh, really, really like this. I think I loved the, like, the intro, like the very beginning of this. I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, it has a very sort of almost surreal vibe to the intro. And strangely enough, like, so I knew this wasn't this when I went in, but when I first heard about this show, when I first heard it was called Devs, I had it in my head that it was some kind of American IT crowd. Do you know what I mean? I was like, what's this going to be? Yeah. Obviously, knowing it's Alex Garland, I knew it would not be that. Um, but yeah, so from the creepy girl's uh, statue to the weirdly sort of dissociating soundtrack and that sort of strange gold aesthetic you get in there, it has a really sinister vibe to it as it goes on. I mean, there are certain questions. I won't uh, spoil the context around this, but when you see a toilet flush, I want you to have in your mind, where does that toilet flush to? Just asking. Um, but but there's there's a lot there's a lot going on in this. There is a lot going on, and and some so, you see feel like I felt suddenly like I was playing catch up for a lot of this episode. I think by the end of the first episode, you feel like you've got a handle on what's happening, but. Up until that point, I was like, I don't really know what's going on. I love Alison Pill in everything. I think she's brilliant. Uh, Nick Offerman, I think, is very well cast in this particular role. Um, and and there's a bit towards... Uh, like the soundtrack does really interesting things. There's a moment where it goes into this weird sort of wailing tenor sax mixed with chanting monks. And it's just like, it sounds bizarre, but it really kind of helps work out this slightly um, out of sync, slightly surreal, but also quite sinister vibe that this series has um i think it's incredibly well put together i'm a big fan of alex garland's work i think he's fantastic i think pretty much everything he's done is great um so yeah i will i will be watching the rest of this but uh, but you don't want to hear me continue to talk about this what you really want to hear is terry 
And I know where this is going because we were involved in a three-way WhatsApp conversation last night. But Terry, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> well, I mean, first things first, what the fuck is quantum computing when it's on? <laughs> like, seriously. Um, I watched this first episode twice um, uh, because... Like you, I didn't really know what was happening a lot of the time, but also wasn't that much clearer by the end of the first episode. So I watched it again um, in the early hours of this morning to try and get a better handle on it. <laughs> Do I have a better handle on it? Do I fuck? <laughs> um, so, so, right. So I should say the visual scale and spectacle of this is extraordinary. The score, as you'd say, James, is, is just remarkable. I, ca- I can't remember hearing such a kind of otherworldly eerie i mean it's just i can't even kind of explain or describe which is bad on a podcast um (laughs) how effective it is and how they i mean it's it's remarkable that alone is incredible but right here's the thing the the disassociative nature of the and and cold nature of the storytelling which you both touched upon Mm. I think that either works for you or it really doesn't. And it really doesn't work for me at all. I find it really off-putting. The pace of it, I thought, um, Boyd, your description of it as being a deliberately paced is um, is one way to put it. Um, really quite slow would be another way to put it. Because, um, you know, there'll be ages where nothing happens or you have no idea what's happening. And then there are, I have to say, there are a couple of kind of standout scenes where it's more like a thriller and they're brilliantly done and quite shocking and quite brutal in the contrast of some meditative scene you've just been you know immersed in for the last three minutes um nick offerman i couldn't disagree with you more james i think he's so i think this is such the wrong role for him so he's kind of looks like this weird hipster ceo as i said on whatsapp last night i definitely dated this guy in brooklyn <laughs> in 2014 he's got a, he's got this plaid check shirt this giant beard is eating baby spinach in one scene. Um, and actually, like, when you watch it again, if you shut your eyes, he sounds just like Christian Bale in American Psycho. Like, that's all I kept thinking about was American Psycho. Um, and he actually reminded me of Steve Buscemi playing God, you know, in Miracle Worker, which we didn't like mm. and reviewed um, a couple of mm. months ago. And that's the thing is it feels almost like it's a parody at points. And maybe that's because it's Nick Offerman and we're more used to him in comedy. But there's a whole speech about free will, which I think, Boyd, you clearly found much more interesting than I did. And he said, <laughs> you know, he goes, oh, the marble rolls because it is pushed. I'm, I mean, I, there were bits I was just... I mean, there's a whole thing about determined, you know, you do good, be deterministic. I was just, oh God, it was killing me. And it didn't, I couldn't take him seriously. And he didn't have, for me, that character, this kind of CEO who um, is grappling with these big issues, um, but is also maybe, it's fair to say without spoilers, is not the greatest guy in the world. Um doesn't have that kind of gravitas and threat and kind of presence. Um, And the other person, and this is going to probably like also not please James, but I thought um, Snea Mizoni, I just thought I didn't, I couldn't get on board with her representation of that character at all. I didn't feel invested in um, their relationship and obviously then why she's so kind of, seemingly upset about him being missing i didn't i just didn't buy it i didn't buy her kind of emotion in this and i get that again that's part of the nature of the storytelling because it's meant to be a bit um disassociative and a bit cold and but it it just didn't hang together for me and i think those two central performances not really working for me personally 
um, coupled with it not being my kind of storytelling yeah. meant I found it quite a challenge, I have to say, to get to the end of the first episode. And there will be no episode two for Terry. <laughs> I'm so gutted. I think you should watch episode two. Please watch episode two. Because I think, I think, <laughs> I think the slowness, it's that weird thing where it doesn't, it literally doesn't affect me at all, the, the, the in quotes, slowness of the storytelling. Because I think the premise is so interesting. The multiple, the different threads of the story are so interesting. I mean, I do think Nick Offerman's pretty good, but his character does get more and more interesting. And um, I also didn't have an issue. I know what you mean about Sonoya Mizuno. I think she's making a deliberate choice as directed yeah. by him yeah. to play it very cool. But again, I think in episode two, I'm pretty sure you see another side to her. And I think it, I, I think you're seeing that she's why she's keeping certain things in, if you like. Um, and that, and her ex-boyfriend comes into it and he's really, he's a really, there's humor and there's more humor as it goes on than I think there is in the opening episode. I just think the, the, the the whole the ideas it's dealing with and the story and the way it plays out are so interesting i think it's the one of the most interesting things i've seen just purely in story terms and then i think on top of that the characters are fascinating his casting choices like there's kaylee spenny who's a young woman plays a a young teenage boy coder who's in the devs development you know he does things like that i think it's incredibly bold and interesting the way it's cast and i have to agree it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen on tv so i just think the, the combination of the, the the crux of it and the kind of meat of the story and the incredible beauty of of it visually, I think it will draw you in. Honestly, I think it's going to draw you in. I think if you watch episode two, honestly, you'll like it. Right, I'll, I hope. I just because I love it so much. I'm really so I'm gutted that you didn't like I it. I will give I will give episode two a go. And but you know, as I say, it's it's an absolute feat on so many levels. Mm. I don't think you can argue with the execution of it at all. It's just I think it's a very as you say deliberate type of story told in a very specific way and that's a way that normally leaves me quite cold but i think there's some bold there's some there's there's some such bold choices that he makes as it goes on i think you might find them purely on filmmaking terms yeah. really interesting to, enough to keep you to keep you interested but we'll see we'll see, we'll see. episode we'll two see. i'll give you my reaction next week boy Jay. thank you well, Good. it may be your cup of tea or it may not but either way i think we recommend you give it a go that is devs which airs on bbc2 on wednesday april the 15th at 9 p.m and we should say they're showing it in Wednesdays and Thursdays every week, and they're all putting it all out as a box set okay. from Thursday on iPlayer. Binge the whole if you, lot. If you, if you, so, so if you desire. are addicted to it, you can. Yeah, exactly. We'll absolutely be doing that. Um, next <laughs> this week is HBO's Run, created by Vicky Jones, who directed the theatre production of Fleabag, which you can see on Amazon now. Uh, this stars Merritt Weaver as Ruby, a woman who, while sitting in her car in advance of her weekly yoga class, receives a text message from a man she's not seen in 17 years. It reads only one word, run. And she does. Uh, Terry, what did you think? Good. Excellent. That was <laughs> run, which airs on. And here's the thing. It airs on Sky Comedy. And I, I have a question to ask both of you with this. Like, this is billed as a comedy. Is it just me or is this not a comedy? This is a mildly comedic sort of comedy thriller hybrid. It's like this is not a comedy in, its, in the it's purest a rom -com, sense. It's it? a rom-com thriller. It's a rom-com mm. thriller. Have you just invented a genre? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's genre, it's genre, it genre. thing. It's genre yeah. blending. It is part rom com, part thriller. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, straight comedy. It is not. No, this is a comedy it's in the way not. that Before Sunrise is a comedy. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. two people who are very witty exchanging brilliantly written dialogue. 
pretty much yes well okay so as you say this and it kind of opens up right in the the heart of the action you've got Merritt Weber who plays um Ruby and she's sat in a car and she gets this text message just run in capital letters um and you just see her type it back drive to the airport jump on a plane to New York and before you know it she's on a train with Donald Gleason who plays Billy her ex-boyfriend um, from college as you say they haven't seen each other in 17 years um and it turns out they had a deal um back then which was if one of them sent a text to the other one just saying running capital letters and the other one replied um they'd meet and travel the country together i think for one week um so as you say created by vicky jones who is um a friend and collaborator of phoebe waller bridge um she did direct the stage version of fleabag i think it's really interesting that she's a playwright because i think that really informs um how this is executed and there are moments where it feels like a play in all the kind of best ways most of the action in this first episode takes place on the train on this Amtrak train and that's actually so much for the benefit of the storytelling I have to say um uh Phoebe Wallabridge is an exec producer we should say and she's got a role later in the series and um, we didn't watch the episodes with her um character in it we should also mention Kate Dennis who's the director who I just think does an incredible job of directing these two brilliant actors and using the train and the pro- close proximity of the train um really really to the benefit of of what they're doing so the best thing about this let's just get straight to the crux of it <laughs> is is these two people and mm-hmm. these two characters that have been created they are so human and i'm not going to say flawed i really hate that because it's not actually that they're flawed it's that they're just really real and they have this amazing chemistry between them so they're both really interesting in their own right both really thorny characters there's a really smart premise which is they have an agreement not to reveal anything about their personal lives and what they've left behind but things start to come out actually incredibly slowly and you get to know the characters as they kind of get to know little details about each other's lives but it kind of doesn't matter that you don't know their backstories because this chemistry they have which is really believable because it's at once awkward and they're a bit embarrassed at times but it's really kind of hot at other times um and the writing is brilliant and it is bold as you'd expect it to be there's an amazing bit where she, um Mary Weather tells her own vagina to calm down mm. um <laughs> which just made me laugh out loud there's two masturbation scenes I counted in the first episode <laughs> um and Merritt Weather's um, uh, character in particular, I just loved because she's really charming and frustrating and funny and self-deprecating, a bit cocky at the same time. And I read a really interesting thing that Vicky Jones said, where she said she and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, when they write characters, they will often swap the gender to see if it still works because they don't ever want to write in a gendered way. And what's really great about this is you have these two characters which kind of they play with preconceptions of gender and what they might be leaving and the way society might judge them. But neither of those characters are kind of tainted of that. They're both just such brilliantly drawn people. And actually not much happens in this first episode apart from they get on the train and they have this series of kind of running around the train and and um, this great kind of back and forward between them as they're re-establishing the ground between them after 17 years. But it's just so brilliantly done. Um, I think from what I've kind of read, the th- there'll be more of the thriller elements as, as the series goes on. Um, but yeah, I really, really love this. 
It is. It's one of these. It's. It's. I love the pacing of this first episode. In that, all the way through this episode, you don't really know what's happening. Like it keeps you following it a distance, and I think that's very much to its benefit. So you can get to know these characters. And I kind of. It's not really before sunrise. I think the reason it reminded me of that is partly because it takes place largely on a train, but. It has elements of that where you've got these two people kind of getting to know each other again, exchanging sort of flirty, interesting, very well-written banter, but it's got more bite to it than that. There's a real edge to the conversation in this. Uh, yeah, it's I love the way it teased all the the information out. I thought the chemistry between those two was incredible. Like, yeah. it was absolutely electric. And um, and she, and she's been a kind of a, a great sort of supporting player in so many shows i'm saying she because i refuse to i don't know whether her surname is pronounced weather or weaver so i'm just going to go with she <laughs> merit merit is uh <laughs> merit yeah. yeah um no she, she's been really really good in so many different shows and always it feels like a kind of in a scene stealing role and it's great to see her actually leading a series and donald gleason's brilliant in everything so uh, yeah i think they're they're fantastic together but it's it's gently funny like it's funny how the beginning of the episode it starts and if you'd gone into this cult it starts as a thriller and then immediately goes into a quick gag and then and which wrong foots you and i think that's the whole thing i was like is this, i don't know what this is and you know i have a problem identifying comedy at the best of times but okay. but i was like is this supposed to be funny but it, i think it is exactly what you say like it's a thriller but it has sort of comedy sort of woven through the fabric of it throughout but it's gentle comedy like they don't go for gags it's just it's witty and it's amusing uh but this is great i can't wait to see the rest of this boy i'm assuming you you very much enjoyed this yeah um of course to be really annoying i've seen five of course you have so of course um, you have so just yeah so it does I, I think what's throwing you is is interesting because i never have a problem i mean i'm not saying this in some kind of like oh you know don't get so hung up about genre guys but i just it just does never bother me like and i've you know it isn't it isn't that laugh out loud funny as you say it's not gags but i don't think it's gentle either i think it is actually quite um spiky mm, yeah and yeah, the humor yeah, yeah, i think yeah. it's quite they're both they're both difficult uh, spiky yeah. characters and that become more and more as as it goes on and i think that's why they're attracted to each other um by the way and it is directed like a thriller isn't it it's like that, that's what's kind of slightly odd unusual but brilliantly unusual about it so it's um there's a comedic uh vibe because what they what she's doing particularly feels outrageous like that she's you know she's clearly dropping her entire existence <laughs> to go and see this guy that she hasn't seen for 17 years or whatever and go on a train across America. So the premise is intrinsically funny, I think, and and and, and interesting and eye-catching and all of that. And she is fun. I think they're both kind of funny people. Like you're supposed to believe they're both like the kind of people you think, oh, they're kind of intriguing and funny because they're unusual and difficult and driven in their own different ways. So I think like... It, it, there are there are moments, and later on in this, as the series goes on, there are set pieces that are quite like bold and shocking. There are developments that are quite shocking and and thrillery, but all the way through, I think it's constantly um, the situations. They, the situations are funny intrinsically. It reminded me one of my favourite films of the seventies, Silver Street, with Richard Pryor mm. and Gene Wilder, which is a comedy rom com buddy thriller. Mm. And I bet I haven't had I haven't seen any reference from from Vicky Jones, but I'm sure she must have seen it because it's almost entirely set on a train. And it's about these uh, mismatched people coming together and having an adventure on a train. I love that stuff. I love train set stuff generally. I think it, for some reason, I think it's brilliant. And I love this episode. And I and it's it goes into places. It's just really, like we were talking about with the opening of Killing Eve, it just goes to places you do not expect. And that is really exciting. So I think it's really great. Yeah, It's, 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 it's just a complete original. Mm. It's a great exactly idea. Exactly that, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, 
Yeah, but I think so. Um, I, I, love I, I think you're right. I think pigeonholing thing by genre, I guess, is, is completely unnecessary. I think from my point of view, it was more just I was wrong footed because in my head I was like, all right, it's it's a comedy. It's on. It's half an hour long. It's on Sky Comedy. I had it in my head yeah. what I thought it was going yeah. to be, and it wasn't. And I think that's why sure. the genre thing yeah. tripped me up. So I'm like, this is not a comedy. Yeah. Like this is. I like this. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting that it's half hour yeah. episodes, and I think that yeah. works really well. It by does. the way. I think it's perfect for it, yeah. But you're right, it's, half the things on Sky Comedy aren't out-and-out yeah. comedies. Is, that is the world we're living, yeah. isn't it? And I know a lot of people who work in, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I was on, I was on a jury with some actual out-and-out. We we produce laugh-out-loud, gag-a-minute comedy, and they get a bit annoyed that there is this stuff now that's dominating the world yeah. of comedy and TV that isn't out-and-out funny it isn't i mean it just isn't it's not designed to make you cackle with laughter but i still think but it this is, is my kind of comedy like as i've said many many times i enjoy this mm. kind of slightly blended genre comedy stuff where it's funny but dramatic because it has a realism to it it's relatable it's believable and this is the world i recognize this world whereas pure comedy worlds i often don't it's like looking at an alien landscape to me yeah. um but yeah i thought i thought it was great we'll definitely watch more of this so sky comedy run wednesday april the 15th at 9pm Finally this week we have the triumphant return of TV's greatest detective investigating his sixth case Titus Welliver is back as the one the only Bosch Did anyone other than me watch this? Absolutely no. not ah! And I, I do like the show. I do like the show. I just didn't have time, and I knew you were covering it, oh, so I was like, "You can I'll deal with this." I'll keep this super, super brief. I mean, ultimately, at this point, if you've watched five years of Bosch and you love it, more of the same, you're going to love this as well. Um, this is this is, as I say, this is six. His sixth case it takes place eleven months after season five ended, and some of the threads that were left dangling at the end of that season are picked up here, as is often the case with Bosch. I love that they do have an A plot, and they have a few sort of B and C plots turn up, and the B and Cs tend to straddle seasons, whereas the A plots are always rounded up at the end of each season. And I think that's nicely done. And after sort of the mystery of his mother was kind of dealt with, there are a few other nice bits here that sort of feed in. There's this one's slightly. Uh, larger scale, a uh, sort of larger f uh, threat level. There's terrorism involved. The feds are involved in this one. Um, the two dirty cops, the Jamie Hector's character, um, Jay Edgar, were investigating last year. That thread is picked up again. Uh, and Maddie is getting more to do now that she's interning for uh, Bosch's former lawyer. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, but it's much the same thing. It's Titus Welliver looking grumpy, going from crime scene to crime scene, you know, solving things intuitively, arguing with uh, Lance Reddick, the police chief who's running for mayor now. Um, there's something about this show that I just find very comforting. I find the stories very gripping. I mean, they're all each based on the Michael Connolly uh, novels, and the books are incredibly densely plotted and very sort of uh, uh, very gripping the way they unravel. And that's why this show works so well. So it is based on a very sort of tightly plotted crime story and and i the titus well is just one of these great character actors and he? he's been banging around for years he's been in everything and i love the fact that he is leading this show like he was in the early season you remember boyd he was in the early seasons of the good wife as the da um yeah. you know he's he, yeah. he he turns up in everything he was uh he's been in star trek before he's been in so many things and i was really pleased when he got this gig yes admittedly he was in uh transformers Age of extinction his face is his warrant <laughs> uh but you know that aside you know having him lead this he's a really 
really good actor. He's got a great face, a really expressive face. Uh, and I think, and I really like Jamie Hector as well, who played uh, Marlo Stanfield in The Wire, uh, but plays his partner in this. But yeah, this is a show filled with great character actors. It's got great plot. It's loads of fun. And, and I can't get enough of it, quite frankly. You know, when I said, when we reviewed uh, Jack Ryan, and I said, um, you know, it's one of these things where I just the thought of just sitting down of a weekend and just binging the latest season just fills me with joy. Like I, an mm. absolute happy mm. place it puts me in. Bosch is exactly the same, but more so because I didn't love season two of Jack Ryan. But every season of Bosch, I've done the same thing. It's dropped and my weekend has just been a Bosch weekend and I've loved every second of it. Uh, and I plan to do it with this as well. Love it. Drops on Amazon off Friday, the 17th, season six of Bosch. Do it. Now, of course, Terry, <laughs> Terry, you will be excited nay thrilled to hear the season two of flack drops <laughs> on monday so i you know, i remember how much you enjoyed that show when it aired so you'll definitely be in uh, in for season two of that won't you mm-hmm. more nuanced portrayal of uh, difficult women if i remember rightly <laughs> that's right i think we all i think we were united in our disdain <laughs> yes, for that it's not good <laughs> um what else is yeah. out this week boyd anything else we've missed anything that i mean we've reviewed quite a I lot think, but I- yeah, I think it's it's Easter week, so it's a pretty incredible week. But I think we've covered it all the mo- the, the main stuff. I think, yeah. Um, Britain's Got Talent started on Sunday, oh, good. Saturday, James. <laughs> yeah, you'll be excited Very by that. Excited. Um, but no, I think we've covered the main stuff. Yeah. Now here's a controversial one. What is our pick of the week? I suspect the jury will be split this week. Run, devs for me. Run. Devs run and oh, oh, that's tricky. I mean, I could pick one or the other because actually I thought they were both excellent. For me, it's not Killing Eve. Uh, It's probably not Quiz. It's either Devs or Run. So I'm going to say Bosch. (laughs) (laughs) You bellend. There we go. Um, so that was this week time I think before we go for a quick banshee uh, and I'm going to go first this week only because I have been uh, I've been asked to do this show a number of times over the months and I've finally given in to do it simply because it's, it's theme appropriate so Cast your mind back to 2006 and a sci-fi channel limited series, The Lost Room. Um, at least I think it was a limited series. The story did get continued as a comic book. It may have just been cancelled, but it, it was quite short-lived. So there were only six episodes of this, and this starred Peter Krause was in it, you know, of uh, of Sports Night and Six Feet Under fame. Uh, Juliana Margulies was in it. Kevin Pollock was in it. Actually, Elle Fanning was in this one as well. Uh, but the whole concept of this is it's set around this, this motel room. This motel, there was an incident in this motel room and somehow this motel room has almost become stuck in time and the motel where this room existed did still exist but the room this particular lost room no longer exists at the hotel it's become sort of separated from time and artifacts that were in this room whether it be like a typewriter or a key or like anything that was in the room when the incident happened they go out in the world and they're just known as artifacts and they're just things from this room and if you have the key the key is the only thing that can get you back into this room and if you find any door that has like a tumbler lock and a door frame like a like a hinge door you can get into the lost room using this key and when you leave the room everything in the room resets and anything that wasn't in the room when the incident happened just disappears forever it's a really bizarre concept of this room that just sort of floats outside space and time and there's a mystery around what happened and the people killing each other and the conspiracy to find the artifacts from this room and there's i believe there's a polaroid as one of the artifacts and if you hold the polaroid 
in the place where the motel is, you can use the Polaroid to see the room, even though the room no longer exists. So the uh, the actual story kind of it bases around uh, around this guy called Joe Miller, and he's searching for objects from the room because he's trying to, to to rescue his daughter who's disappeared, and she's one of the people who's been in the room when it's reset and therefore has vanished. Uh, and it's a it's a motel. It's a not sort of old sixties motel on Route sixty six. But it's just it's a batty concept. And I remember watching this on Sci Fi at the time back in two thousand six, and just being. It's one of these shows where the show itself is not great, um, but the concept is so captivating and fascinating that you just want to watch it. Like you want to find out what happens on. You get kind of a little bit obsessed with the idea of it. Really, really good. Lost Room, if only because we are all in many ways now living in the Lost Room. Uh, it's worth watching. But let me have a quick look now live to see if it's streaming anywhere. Uh you can stream it actually on Amazon. You can stream it now on Amazon. So if you want to see the one and only season of The Lost Room, uh, head over to Amazon and you can watch it now. That's my banshee. <laughs> I'm quite interested in that. I remember I remember reading about the the, uh, the premise, but I never yeah, watched it's, it. It's, yeah, so it but quite... you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's quite a clever idea. I can't remember if the actual mm, yeah. sort of human plot of this, like him trying – I can't remember if that was actually any good because it's been lost in my memory. But the only thing that stuck with me is the idea of the room and the artifacts and the objects and like the incident that caused it. I just thought, I just thought it was really cool. As a kind of little – it feels like the kind of thing that could have been an episode of The Outer Limits, you know? But spread yeah. out over six episodes. But I've picked up. a show that could not be more different okay. and down to earth and real. Um, this show, I've, I, I was trying. I was basically looking for stuff that Leslie Manville had done because I was thinking about Save Me and stuff. Um, and I remember this show that came out in the late nineties. There are only two series of it on BBC One. The cast is Leslie Manville, Gwyneth Strong, who was um, Rodney's girlfriend in Only Fools and Horses. I'm sure you know that, James. Uh, Michelle Collins, Francis Barber, who's always brilliant in everything, and Pauline Quirk. And it was about a group of women who grew up together at school. Then. Dis, uh, dissipate and they haven't seen each other for years and they come together one of them has a wedding and she's got cold feet and it's just about this group of really interesting women and their issues one of them is a Leslie Manville's character is a lesbian but she can't um, tell people because she feels she's a teacher at school and she's she kind of worries about what will happen with that this is obviously in the late 90s a slightly different world one of them wants to have a desperately wants to have a baby Pauline Quirk's character is, is not happy with her husband it's, it, it was just a really well written written by Susan Udo I think it's how you pronounce it who was an EastEnders writer who also wrote the novels on which it's based. It was a really quality two-series drama, um, you know, low concept, just about a group of women and the, and the different issues they have. It was really good. And you can get it on DVD because I checked for about 10 quid. And what was it called again, Boyd? Real, real women. women. Speaking of real women, Terry, <laughs> have you got anything for us um, this week? I want to do In the Flesh. Oh, good choice. Mm. We haven't done this, right? No. Um so I stumbled upon this by accident this week when I was um, looking for something to watch. And apparently all I watch at the moment is um, apocalyptic uh, dramas. So this is on iPlayer. Um, both seasons are on iPlayer. There were only two seasons. The third season um, never happened because it was a BBC Three show. And obviously BBC Three went to be online only. And it's such a shame. And it was it's such a casualty of that because... Um, you know, zombie things aren't necessarily my natural speed, <laughs> but I absolutely love this. My um, boyfriend put it on and I was like, what the fuck is this? And then I was absolutely gripped um, by the first episode because it's it's fundamentally like what a lot of these things are about, which is actually about otherness. It's about tolerance. It's about outsiders. Um, and this was particularly good because it focused on this teenager 
um Kieran played by Luke Newbury um and he goes home to his village of Rawton which is in Yorkshire there's something really fascinating about this being set in this kind of not particularly tolerant um community in the north of England um and essentially there'd been an uprising of um of people who died in 2009 only people who died in 2009 kind of rose up um were zombies and murdered loads of people and this picks up years later where they've kind of been diagnosed with this partially disease syndrome it's called um and the government kind of helped them reintegrate into society they're on this is this medication program which um helps them remember when they were human and they're kind of trying to be reintroduced back into society and he gets sent back to his village where essentially there's like a local militia trying to take them all out um it's so brilliantly sensitively emotional like the emotion at the heart of this and it's really brutal there's a there were a couple of scenes that absolutely took my breath away ricky tomlinson is in this um and there's a scene with his wife that i did not see coming at all because this looks like essentially a teen drama um told through the lens of a zombie apocalypse but it's it's not all it's really grown up it's really shocking in parts the drama's done really well the performances are great i was in tears by the end of the first season um just starting the second season um so if you did not watch in the flesh in 2013 i urge you to jog to the iplayer and uh, and watch it immediately oh my heart my heart can't take it i concur boy you've almost certainly seen this as well haven't you yeah. yeah, it was great. Yeah, Very it was good really show. good. Yeah, but was, you know, did you ever see Warm Bodies, the film Warm Bodies with Nicholas Holt? Oh, no. Yeah, mm. Similar sort of like humanised zombie type thing, but mm. not as yeah. good. Anyway, so yes, uh, that is it, I guess, for another episode of the Pilot TV Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, then do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. And if you're an Android stan who hates all things Apple, then please hold your nose and do it anyway. As ever, you can find us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Terry underscore White, and at Boyd Hilton. We'll be back next week, but since time is now basically meaningless and every day bleeds seamlessly into the next, you'll just have to keep an eye out for the notification on your phone. It'll be worth it, though, as we'll not only be watching Gareth Evans' Gangs of London, but season two of Ricky Gervais' After life and if i have anything to say about it there might even be a little viking action in there as well yes shield walls at the ready arslings because utred of beppenberg is back destiny is all pilot out <laughs> what just happened wow